0: The message this morning is entitled, Why Am I an Anabaptist? Now, to fill you in a little bit, I was asked to bring this message at Mabel Chapel last Sunday evening, and it was suggested that I bring it here this morning, so I felt led to do that. Um, Why am I an Anabaptist? As I studied for this message, it became clear to me that... I need to search my heart. am I truly an Anabaptist it the message would look a little different if it was if the question would have been why am I a Mennonite? Mennonites are Anabaptists, but there's a lot of other groups that are also anabaptists of Anabaptist background. Um, the message this morning is on a little broader scale than uh, why am i why 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 am I a Mennonite but For a text this morning, let's turn to John 15. I won't spend, unfortunately, won't spend a lot of time in the Word this morning. Um, Let's look at John 15, verses 9 to 17. I'm going to read this this time. John 15, verses 9 to 17. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, But I have called you friends. For all things I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. So I want to give us a, a sort of a synopsis of these verses. Verse 9, God loves us. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue my love. God loved Jesus. Jesus loves us. We, be, we are Christ's um, brethren, so God loves us the same as he loved Jesus. God loves us. Verse 10, we abide in that love through obedience. If you keep my commandments you shall abide in my love. Verse 11, obedience brings joy. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Real obedience brings real joy. Verse 12, love each other. Verse 13, self-sacrifice. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, giving up ourselves for those we love. Verse 14, again, obedience. Verse 15 is a close relationship with God. Verse 16, we are called to go and bear fruit. I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. We're supposed to be going and bearing fruit. In verse 17, again, love one another. Now as you think of your heritage, what you've been taught all your life, what the Anabaptist belief stands for, What we think of ourselves standing for as a church, as a New Testament believing, obeying church, is that a synopsis of what we believe? Are we doing what Jesus is commanding in these verses? Something we find throughout Scripture and especially in the New Testament, love and obedience to God and love for each other. Anyone who claims To love God but does not obey him is not a true follower of God. That's a a theme you'll find so clear in the New Testament. And it's a theme that so many churches want to sort of attain to, but aren't committed to wholly attaining to. Is that where you are? Is that where I am? As we look at the Anabaptists and what they believed, that was their core, obedience to the Word. Loving God and obedience to the Word, or at least for most of them, not all of them. So what are Anabaptists? Anabaptists, as we would say it to see it today, are followers of Christ who simply live out the teachings of the New Testament. Now, what sets them apart from other groups? Probably the clearest distinction today between Anabaptists and other groups would be the Anabaptist commitment to put into practice and physically live out the directives given in the New Testament. Literal obedience to God's word is the defining difference. There's a lot of churches that give lip service, To New Testament teaching, but don't live it out in a daily walk. That is the difference. Way back then, in the 1500s, and today, in true Anabaptist churches. When did the Anabaptist movement begin? I'm going to give a little bit of a history here. I'm not a historian. I should be much more than I am. But it doesn't take much digging to find out a lot of facts and history on the Anabaptists, what they believe and what happened. So when did the Anabaptist movement begin? Officially January 21 of 1525. During that time, there was a lot of unrest and change happening in the church of that day, which was largely the Roman Catholic Church. And Luther, who was one of the fathers of the Protestant church, had, had been pushing for a more biblical approach to salvation, among other things. And out of that unrest, his teaching and others, um, there was a new awareness of how incorrect the Roman Catholic Church was. And several men started to speak out for true biblical teaching. Some of these men eventually got together in Zurich, Switzerland. And it was sort of a town council meeting there's the whole, like the leaders of the town, you, you realize that, you got to realize that it, the Roman Catholic religion was sort of just what everybody was. I mean, you were either that or you weren't. I mean, it was, so the whole town is this Roman Catholic town. And the leaders of that town are very involved in the religious affairs of that day. And so they get together to have this town council meeting about these new teachings that are coming out or being pushed. And the biggest part of their discussion that evening was about infant baptism. Now there was much controversy over the subject, and so some of the council was this way, some was this way, and so a few evenings later, and this, these few, few evenings later was January 21, 1525, a group of very like-minded men, including George Blarock, Connor Grebel, and some others, got together to further discuss the issue of infant baptism. That seemed to be sort of the, the, the point at which the, the Anabaptists were pivoting on. Like, this can't be right. Luther was preaching salvation through Christ alone, through grace alone, And you had some others, reformers. The Reformation was was really starting to pull people away from the Roman Catholic Church. But the Anabaptists were saying, wait a minute. There's some things about what they're teaching, what these reformers are teaching, that is incorrect. And one of those is infant baptism. And that evening, George Blarock stood and asked Conrad Grebel, after much discussion, asked Conrad Grebel to baptize him with true Christian baptism upon his faith and experience or I should say faith and knowledge and since there was no ordained ministry at that point Connor agreed Connor baptized George and George in turn baptized several other people men who were there that evening now there had been some people of that time that were pushing back against infant baptism and had not Allow their children to be baptized, but this is the first recorded adults being rebaptized with what we call true believers' baptism. So, officially, the Swiss Anabaptist movement was born that night when Conrad Grebel baptized George Blackrock as the first rebaptism. And the name Anabaptist actually means rebaptizers. Now, when they started rebaptizing, they pretty much, when you were when you re, were rebaptized as an adult, you basically were saying the Roman Catholic Church is wrong, and that was the official religion. And so, you pretty much were standing up against. Huge powerhouse, and it wasn't long until it was when you did that. There was a price on your head. You were going to be persecuted, and very soon thereafter, persecution broke out against anybody who was rebaptized. Now, so now the Anabaptist movement has begun. Two years later, and during those two years, there's a lot of persecution going on, a lot of unrest and and um, stuff. But two years later, the leaders of the Anabaptist movement got together and with Michael Sattler chairing the meeting, came up with what we call the Schleidon Confession of Faith. Now, some of you would not recognize the name Michael Sattler because there's a Sattler College, I think it's sort of named after him maybe, but he chaired the meeting and therefore has been sort of um, considered the author of the Schleidheim Confession of Faith. And we'll talk about that the, that Confession of Faith in a little bit. But three months later, after the Schleidheim Confession of Faith, Faith was written, in May of 1527, Michael Sattler was 37 years old when this happened. Sattler was arrested by Austrian authorities, along with his wife and several other Anabaptists. And the Catholic ruler of Austria urged that Sattler be immediately executed by drowning. But due to his prominence in the Anabaptist movement, another ruler by the name of Joachim had an interest in due process, and he wanted to give Sattler a trial. And at that trial, Sattler was charged with defying the emperor, rejecting the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and let me explain that a little bit. The, <clears throat> excuse me, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist was saying that when you partake, partook of communion, the, the bread actually changed to Jesus' actual flesh and the blood, the wine, actually changed to his blood. And so you were, in reality, drinking his blood and eating his flesh. It was, it was like he was physically present, giving you his flesh and blood. Sort of a twist on what the Bible teaches. And he, was, he rejected that at this, this trial. He rejected infant baptism. and Well, he was charged for rejecting infant baptism and also for uh, rejecting extreme unction. Now, extreme unction, I did not know this until my study, was when someone is on their deathbed, they would come in and anoint that, well, not always on the deathbed, later on in life, like I should say, they would anoint this person with oil. And basically taking the teaching and anointing with oil and making it do things it doesn't do. They taught that it absolved that person from all sin. So no matter who you were, if you received extreme unction, right before you died, that puts you pretty much straight into, you know, all your sins were absolved and you were good to go. Well, that's not correct theology. And he, was, he stood up against that. Here you know, he was actually being charged with standing up against that. He was charged with dishonoring the saints, teaching against oaths, um, practicing the love feast, which the love feast is what we, our communion now is. It's believers' communion is what they were considering the love feast, as I understand it. Marrying and advocating non-resistance. Roman Church did not advocate non-resistance in any way. So those those are the things he was. Um, Charged with. Sadler denied the, that he had defied the imperial edicts of, or dishonored the, the saints. In other words, he did, denied that he had disobeyed the government or that he had dishonored the saints in any way, but he defended the remaining charges as moral and biblical, as we would see them today. He also denied that courts should have jurisdiction in religious doctrine, courts should not over, overrule what the church does. Well, Sadler was convicted. And the only reason I'm giving you this is so that some of you haven't studied history so you understand what our forefathers went through. And I'm just going to read it for what it is. Sadler was convicted. The sentence to execution read, Michael Sadler shall be committed to the executioner. The executioner shall take him to the square and there first cut out his tongue and then va- fasten him to a wagon and there with glowing hot iron tongs twice tear pieces from his body. And then on the way to the site of execution five times more, tear pieces from his body, <clears throat> and then burn his body to powder as an arch heretic. And that is what happened. The other men in the group were executed by sword, and the women, including Mar- Margarita, his wife, were executed by drowning. Now, sounds bloody and awful, and it was. But what did they die for? Why, what, why all this? Well, remember what they just wrote the Schleidheim Confession of Faith. That confession of faith were these seven points. Basically, I mean, condense it down. This is what they were promoting. Believers' baptism, excommunication of sinners, believers' communion, separation from the world, pastors in the church, non-resistance and no swearing of oaths. Now, would have we died for what we believe on those points. So believer's baptism, of course we understand, they were being, infants were being baptized, they put them into church and they were Christians. No, they weren't. Believer's baptism is a person cannot be baptized until they are a believer and they show a life of true surrender to Christ. Then they're baptized. They ask for baptism. It's, it's something they ask for. Excommunication of sinners. The Roman Catholic Church sinners were just kind of, oh, you know, not a big deal. And they were saying, no, the church has the right and responsibility, actually, to deal with sin in people's lives. And if they don't repent, they're excommunicated. They're they're put out of the church. That's what the New Testament teaches. Plain, simple New Testament teaching. Um, Believers' communion. We practice that today. Only believers are allowed to partake in communion. Separation from the world. Living a separate life. Pastors in the church, of course the Roman Catholic Church was set up by quite a, and still is quite a hierarchy, and they were saying that no, the leaders should be brought from the church for the church just like the New Testament says. Number six was non-resistance. We understand that teaching. And number seven, no swearing of oaths. They were, they took, Christ's teaching on not swearing <laughs> literal and died for, their, for those teachings died for what they believed on these points so that was where that was what sort of separated the Anabaptists from a lot of others if you do some studying history there were some Anabaptists that were got really way off in left field and did some horrendous terrible things um, there's a lot of bloodshed in those days But through it all, there was a thread of truth, of biblical, of sticking to the word and believing what the word said and living it out. So what I want to look at now is Anabaptism, what it is, could become today, What is? what are the basic beliefs? But I also want to start with what made the Anabaptists distinctive from the Protestant movement. We had the Protestant movement going on at the same time that you had the Anabaptist movement going on. So I'd like to look at that; those differences for just a little bit here. It's Certainly the Anabaptist founders owed much to Luther. Luther sort of started a lot of these things. He had some good teachings. But Luther and the other Protestant reformers taught a lot of good biblical teachings that... The Roman Catholic Church wasn't teaching. And in particular, Luther's emphasis on salvation through personal faith in Christ alone, by grace as revealed in Scripture. That prepared the way for the Anabaptist believers to say, wait a minute. That's not what the Catholic Church is teaching. We need to follow biblical teaching. But there was many other crucial issues Anabaptists differed as much from Luther as as Luther did from the Catholic Church. And while we need to give Luther his due, we do well to remember some historical realities. Luther, as well as Calvin and Zwingli, came to oppose harshly the Anabaptists. In fact, of the twenty to 40,000 Anabaptists martyred in the early decades, likely more were massacred by Protestants than by Catholics. Now, the differences between Anabaptists and the Reformers, in other words, Luther and Zwingli, Calvin, and the Anabaptist uh, movement. The differences ran deep, and here are some of them. Luther, Calvin, and their associates wanted reformation of the medieval church. The Anabaptists wanted restoration of the New Testament church. The reformers looked to the state to defend the establishment of an official religion. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, sought no government endorsement whatsoever. The Reformers asserted that all people in the realm should conform to the official state religion. The Anabaptists, however, proclaimed religious and civil liberty for all. Now that was not 100% true in the Anabaptist movement. There were some um, cultish leaders within that movement that tried to enforce an Anabaptist religion on others in their, in their town or whatever. did not work. Absolutely did not work. That's not what we're taught to do. The Reformers retained much of the Catholic church-state fusion of that day. The Anabaptists, who saw themselves as strangers and pilgrims in this world, rejected any fusion of faith and citizenship. The church of which they testified and for which they died was based on Jesus Christ alone and knew no state boundaries. And today that is so amazing. When we think of our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, There's how many boundaries between here and there and there's no boundaries in our faith. The Reformers specifically endorsed military slaughter by Christian soldiers. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, expressed love for the persecutors and prayed for them. The Reformers fragmented and compartmentalized Christian living. Luther wrote, as a Christian, man has to suffer everything and not resist anybody. As a member of the state... The same man has to fight with joy as long as he lives. The Anabaptists said nothing to him. There's no dual purposes in life. We can't have one ethic for one situation, another ethic for another situation. We are who we are. We are non resistant followers of Christ. As you can see, Anabaptists were not part of the great Protestant Reformation, but established a third option. They upheld a very different and distinct set of values. Today, of course, many other groups have accepted much of what the Anabaptists rediscovered and what they were promoting in the early days. And the difference between Protestantism and Anabaptism have decreased significantly. But the total set of Anabaptist beliefs and practices remains distinctive. Even though the Anabaptists have often not practiced and preached it consistently, Anabaptism is still one of the most complete, Applications of New Testament doctrines, principles, and early church example that you will find anywhere. Now, there's 12, came across 12 principles of Anabaptism and these would look different if I was saying why am I a Mennonite? This is a brush that you paint this is more looking at the larger Anabaptist church as a whole. The larger Anabaptist group of churches this is 12 principles that they hold to. Number one, a high view of the Bible. While not worshiping the Bible itself, for that would be bibliolatry, and that's the first I'd ever heard that word, but it's true. If we worship the Bible, we're, that's idolatry. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the author of the Bible. I, Anabaptists accept the scripture as the authoritative word of God, and through the Holy Spirit, that infallible God to lead men to faith in Christ and to guide them in the life of the Christian discipleship. Anabaptists insist that Christians must always be guided by the word, which is to be collectively discerned and by the spirit. We are not an island to ourselves discerning the word of God for our own selves only. We discern the will of God through a body of believers. The body of believers speaks into our lives. That's an Anabaptist teaching. Emphasis on the New Testament. Since Christ is God's supreme revelation, Anabaptists make a clear functional distinction between the equally inspired Old and New Testaments. We see an old and new covenant. We read the old from the perspective of the new and see the New Testament as the fulfillment of the old. Where the two differ, the new prevails, and thus Anabaptist ethics are derived primarily from the New Testament. The Old Testament is there for our teaching and for a basis for what we believe from the new. Number three, emphasis on Jesus as central to all else. Anabaptists derive their understanding of who Christ is directly from the word and emphasize a deep commitment to take Jesus seriously in all of life. Such a view runs counter to notions that the commands of Jesus are too difficult for ordinary believers. Anabaptists take Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount as literal and meant to be lived out by his followers. Do I really do that? Do I really believe the Sermon on the Mount was for us to live out in daily life? Number four, the necessity of a believer's church. Anabaptists believe that Christian conversion, while not necessarily sudden and traumatic, always involves a conscious decision. Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Believing that an infant can have no conscious, intelligent faith in Christ, in Christ Anabaptists baptize only those who have come to a personal, living faith. Voluntary baptism, together with a commitment to walk in the full newness of life and to strive for purity in the church, constitutes the basis of church membership. Number five, the importance of discipleship. Becoming a Christian involves not only belief in Christ, but also discipleship discipleship faith is expressed in holy living in christ salvation and ethics come together not only are we saved through christ but we are also to follow him daily in obedient living thus for example anabaptists from the beginning renounced the oath they determined to speak the truth for them there could be no gradi- gradations of truth-telling anabaptists continue to teach that salvation makes us followers of Jesus Christ and that He is the model for the way we are to live. Simple obedience. Number six, insistence on a church without classes or divisions. The church, the body of Christ, has only one head. While in acknowledging functional diversity, we are all different. Anabaptist believers set aside all racial, ethnic, And class distinctions because we are all one in the unity and equality of the body. We are equal at the foot of the cross. No matter matter our skin color, no matter where we come from, no matter what, we are equal before Christ. Belief in the church, number seven, belief in the church as a covenant community. Corporate worship, mutual aid, fellowship, and mutual accountability characterize this community. An individualistic or self-centered anabaptism is a contradiction in terms. That speaks to me, because I have a tendency to want to do things my way. Uh, I see it this way, so that's the way it ought to be. That's a contradiction in terms to what these early Anabaptists believed. We are part of a body of Christ. That body of Christ speaks into my life. Number eight, separation from the world. The community community of the transformed belongs to the kingdom of God. It functions in the world, but is radically separate from the world. The faithful pilgrim church sees the sinful world as an alien environment with thoroughly different ethics and goals. This principle includes separation of church and state. Therefore, Anabaptists reject all forms of civil religion, be it the traditional corpus Christianum or more recently developed forms of Christian nationalism that Christian nationalism showed itself really strong in our last election. When you have ultra-conservative groups that in times past wouldn't have had anything to do with the government, going down the road with an American flag flying off of it with support Trump and all this going on, that's Christian nationalism. Like, we as Christians have to band together and change our America. Christian nationalism does not align align itself with teaching in the New Testament. Most of the more conservative groups, including us as conservative Mennonites, would believe that separation from the world also means that we should have no involvement in government at all, including voting. Jesus left us a very clear example by having all power, but never in any way trying to affect the government. He never used his power to affect change in the governance of the country where he was. Even though that is exactly what the Jews were looking for in the Messiah. If Jesus would have come in and booted the Roman government or done anything, really, to control the Roman government, that's what they were expecting in the Messiah. Jesus didn't do that. He could have. In fact, abortion was a huge deal in that day. They didn't abort babies pre-birth, but they would take babies and simply throw them in the gutter, leave them lay. Jesus could have, in some way, in his power, could have come in and changed that thing. Boom. Made that go away. He didn't. He won the hearts of the New Testament church. That church picked the babies up out of the gutter and raised them as their own. Number nine, the church as a visible counterculture. As a united fellowship of believers, every Anabaptist congregation models an alternate community. Such a covenant community functions as an authentic counterculture. Each church represents the local body of Christ and as such becomes the hands and feet of Jesus to the local community. No matter what part of the world that you take Christ's teachings to, they are always in some way cross-cultural. Christ's teachings are always in some way cross-cultural. There is no culture that aligns itself perfectly with Jesus' teachings. Jesus always... When he enters someone's life, he creates a change. There's no culture that aligns itself perfectly with Jesus' teachings. We are demonstrating that to the world around us. What those teachings look like in real life. Number ten, believe that the gospel includes a commitment to the way of peace modeled by the Prince of Peace, and we call it non-resistance. Here, Anabaptists differ from many other Christians. Anabaptists believe that the peace position is not optional, not marginal, and not related mainly to the military. On the basis of Scripture, Anabaptists renounce violence in human relationships. We see peace and reconciliation, or the way of love, as being at the heart of the Christian gospel. God gave his followers this ethic, not as a point to ponder, but as a command. It was costly for Jesus... And it may also be costly for his followers. The way of peace is a way of life. And if you do much study in Anabaptist history, those that really grabbed a hold of that teaching suffered terribly. But they would pray for their martyrs as they were being killed. Something the martyrs could not deal with. Couldn't understand. Number 11, commitment to servanthood. Just as Christ came to be a servant to all, so Christians should also serve one another and others in the name of Christ. Thus, separation from a sinful world is balanced by a witness of practical assistance to a needy and hurting society. We are not called to separate ourselves from the world physically, as in living in a commune somewhere where we don't rub shoulders with the world. We are here to show sinners who Jesus is, partly by our daily walk of life and partly by loving them no matter who they are. Number 12, insistence on the church as a missionary church. Anabaptists believe that Christ has commissioned the church to go into all the world and all of society and to make disciples of all people, baptizing them and teaching them to observe his commandments. The evangelistic imperative is given to all believers. These principles that we just read, these 12 principles constitute the the essence of Anabaptism today. While each emphasis can be found elsewhere, other churches teach some of these, the combination of all twelve constitutes the uniqueness of the Anabaptist churches we see today. The Protestant Reformation had not gone far enough. Luther had taught some really good things about faith and about truth and, and salvation, but it wasn't enough. The early Anabaptists, while diverse and far from perfect, committed themselves to nothing less than the restoration of the New Testament church. We have the privilege of reemphasizing these 12 principles in word and deed here and now. Now the title of the message is, Why Am I an Anabaptist? And as I studied for this message, I found myself pondering the question. And am I truly an Anabaptist at heart? To be an Anabaptist is to live a life of selfless surrender to Christ and service to others. I believe that Anabaptist theology, as I understand it, is correct doctrinally according to Scripture. However, I also realize that we are people. And even born again believers don't get everything in life right. Because of this, even though I see imperfections in the local body of believers, the teachings and beliefs that we hold dear are the teachings that I want to pass on to future generations. Now, to be frankly honest, I have not always felt the way I do now. <clears throat> As a young man, I struggled. To understand some of the teachings I grew up with. Two of those teachings were non-resistance and separation of church and state. But as I've studied the Bible, and I've watched what's happened in the world around me, those two applications have become much more of a reality in my life and much more important. The church has been called to win the world to Christ through sacrifice, love, love, And service. We cannot get entangled with the affairs of this world. We have a higher calling. We are part of a different kingdom. Our goals and motives are controlled by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Am I, are you willing, as our Anabaptist forefathers were, to die for our faith? Am I an Anabaptist? When I read some of the stories of what they went through for the things they believed. Wow. They didn't go through anything more than what Jesus went through for us. I don't think anybody can suffer more than Jesus suffered. He said, the, the Bible says his cup of suffering was filled. I don't think it, that cup of suffering can be filled any fuller for us than it was for him. Am I willing to return that kind of commitment to him as our forefathers did? Am I a true, committed, born-again believer, follower of Jesus Christ? Let's have a song.